Our scripture reading this morning is going to be taken from the book of Judges. You can find that, Judges chapter 3, you can find that printed in your bulletins. Yesterday I came across a, a quote uh, news item on Facebook. Uh, and, and this is what it was called, The 18 Worst Things for Left-Handed People. Uh, and it was subtitled, I Can No Longer Be Silent on the Daily Oppression of the Left-Handed Community. Uh, how many lefties do we have? Okay, there's, that's my wife. Um, <laughs> my wife, Susan, is left-handed. Uh, and and I, we've been married for 18 years. And until I saw that article, I never realized how difficult it was for left-handed people. And so as, as a minister of the gospel and as a favor to my wife... Uh, I feel it's my duty to, to shed some light on the silent suffering of the left-handed among us. So, um, here's some of the problems left-handed people have that, that you might not be aware of. I certainly wasn't. Number one, uh, spiral notebooks. So your spiral notebooks are a problem for left-handed people. And I think about it because the spiral's right here, and if you're right-handed, you're doing this. If you're left-handed, your hands, I can even act like that, but your hands all on top of... The spiral. Same thing with three-ring binders. The binders are constantly getting in the way of your arm as you're trying to write. Uh, another problem they face is if you're in kindergarten, there's always only two pairs of left-handed scissors. There's usually about three left-handed people uh, in a class. Ballpoint pens don't work as well for left-handed people because what are we doing when we're, we're writing right here is we're, we're pulling it along. When you're a lefty, you're actually having to push it along. And so it doesn't work as well for left-handed people. Ink is on your hand while you're writing more often because you're you're following what you just wrote on paper if you're a left-handed person. Uh, the, the, the iPad even, the Kindle app, if you naturally click the button on the left-handed side while you're reading, it goes back a page instead of forward. It's a hard life to have. Um, the, the driver's cup holder in the car, where is it? On the right-hand side. It's not on the left-handed side. The keyboard on the computer. If there's a separate keyboard, where is it? It's on the right-handed side of the keyboard, not the left-handed side. Can openers, video game controllers, evidently, are also diff difficult for left-handed people. School desk. You remember the old, the old school desk? How they're shaped for a right-handed person to take notes. And studies have even shown that left-handed people can die up to nine years sooner than right-handed people. Now, the person who wrote this article also said that that's good news because that means you can become a zombie sooner. So I, that may say something about how statistically accurate that is. Um, but in any event, we're a right-handed society. And often we're not aware of the difficulties that left-handed people have to deal with. They don't get a lot of respect. This was true in the nation of Israel as well. It's true in the Bible. Now, you think of passages like this. Isaiah 62. God swears by which hand? His right hand. He doesn't swear by his left hand. Uh, Psalm 16 verse 11 tells us that at God's right hand are pleasures forevermore. I don't know if that means hell's in his left hand. But, but it says that his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 110, verse 1. 
The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. This is the position of honor, is the right hand, not at the left hand. Well, what's the deal with all this? What's the deal with all this right-handed favoritism? Uh, most of the people in that culture were right-handed, and so as they are today, and so the right hand became the symbol of power and authority. If you got in a sword fight, you fought with your right hand, you didn't fight with your left hand. So, so even back in the day, southpaws, lefties, uh, they didn't get a lot of respect. But today, if you're left-handed, and this is only for my wife, evidently, she's only lefty here. Today, the, the left-handers are going to give some respect. Because the hero of our story, it's a very strange story that we're going to read. The hero of our story is a left-handed person. And in fact, it's, it's interesting how much the story focuses on the fact that he's a left-handed person, as we'll see as we read it. But what we're going to see as we read the story is we're going to see God giving undeserved mercy, unexpected mercy to an undeserving people. And we're also going to see that he uses uh, an unexpected Savior and unexpected methods to deliver his people. So, that's where we're going. Uh, Josh, excuse me, Judges 3, beginning in verse 7. And as I read this, I want you to keep in mind that we're going to lose a little bit of it in the translation. But the Israelites would really have thought this was funny. Alright, so this is this is going to, this story is going to kind of take you off guard as we get into it. But the Israelites really would have thought this is a funny story. Alright, so here we go. Uh, Judges 3, beginning in verse 7. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Bells and the Asherah. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathim, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan, and I can pronounce it the same way twice. So they, they've served this guy eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, Othniel the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan Rishathim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishathim. So the land had rest for forty years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gerah, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab, and Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near, near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded silence. And all the attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. 
And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat. And Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. Then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. When he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, Surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited until they were embarrassed. But when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them, and there lay their Lord dead on the floor. He had escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Sierra. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, Follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. After him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines when ox gave, and he also saved Israel. Would you pray with me? Father, this is a, a weird story to us to find uh, in the Bible, but, but you have placed it there uh, to teach us and to instruct us and encourage us. Uh, so I pray that you would give us insight into it, that you would help us to understand it, uh, and to understand what it has to do with us. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Interesting story, right? Uh, the first thing I want us to, to see in this is God's unexpected mercy to an undeserving people. Look back with me at verse 7 again. We read that the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Uh, the, the text tells us that they forgot God and they turned from Him to serve the Baals, to serve these gods that were not gods. Uh, the text tells us that God was, was angry about them and so He delivered them into the hands of an oppressor who came and oppressed them. The people cry out. Uh, God raises up a judge. And not a judge. The judges and judges aren't what we think of judges. But these are more like warrior deliverers. Okay? So, so God raises up a judge, Othniel, and he delivers people, uh, he delivers God's people from the hand of, of their oppressors. Now, Othniel, and this whole first section is kind of a pattern for all of judges. And Othniel is kind of the model judge. Okay, he's kind of the fair-haired child. Um, he's, he's less Clint Eastwood and more Harrison Ford. All right? he's, 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 he's the model for all the other judges. Uh, Othniel we saw first in chapter 1 of Judges. Uh, he's someone who had fought in the conquest and taken the land. He's Caleb's nephew. He married from among the Israelites instead of doing what a lot of the other Israelites were doing. And he didn't go and take a a bride from among the Canaanites who worshipped other gods, but 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 he kept it, you know, in the faith, um, and he settled down, and he's you know raising his family, he's, he's doing all the right things, and he's equipped by God to go and deliver his people, and, and that's what he does. And then what happens next? Verse eleven, excuse me, verse twelve. 
And the people of Israel again, again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And this shouldn't be surprising to you because this is what we said was going to happen in the book of the Judges. That God's people rebel. God sends punishment. They cry out. God sends a deliverer. There's a time of peace. And then they rebel all over again. So see, we see it happening already. Uh, verse, going back to verse 7, though, I think it, it gets at what's really going on here. Why did they do this? Why did they turn away from God? Verse 7 tells us that they forgot the Lord. Not that they literally forgot that God existed, but they forgot what He had done for them. He, he, he ceased to become the main thing in their lives. Other things crowded out God. The gods of the people around them began to look more attractive to them than the God of Israel was. And so who God was no longer controlled who they were and no longer controlled how they lived their lives. They saw the false gods around them and they felt that these gods offered them something better. And so they turned away from God. Now we talked about this a little bit last week, but that's a struggle uh, but if you're a, a believer, that, that you face that struggle as well. We're prone to forget God and the grace that He's shown us. We see the things that the, the false gods of our culture offer us. Whether it's money, power, advancement, education, even pleasure. We see these gods that are, that are held up in our culture and we can run after them as well. Turning our backs on God. Uh, Tim Keller wrote this. He said, Our hearts are like a bucket of water on a very cold day. They will freeze over unless we regularly smash the ice that is forming. We have this tendency to, to, to freeze over to become cold toward God. Unless, and unless we are diligent in pursuing our relationship with God, unless we're regularly smashing the ice that's forming in our lives, it can become very easy to say, well, hey, you know, I'll, I'll just do it just this once. It's not, it's not that big deal if I just do it once. It's not going to hurt anything. God, God really doesn't care that much. Okay? It's okay. And it's easy for that just once to become just one more. For that just one more to become just one more unless God intervenes. And that's actually what happens here in the book of Judges. God intervenes he shows mercy to this people. And, and I say it's unexpected. It's not unexpected if you're familiar with the story of the Bible. But from the outside looking in, it would be kind of unexpected. Like, what, why is he putting up with them? They're just doing the same thing over and over again. He delivers them, and then they turn their back on him, and they run away from him. You would think he would just say, okay, forget about it. But he doesn't. He continues to show them mercy. Uh, and our text shows us that he shows them mercy in a couple of ways. And the first one is probably uh, surprising to you. But, but look in uh, verses 12 through 14. This is the first way God shows them mercy. The people of Israel again did what was evil. The Lord struck his eggline. Uh, verse 13. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Malachites and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms. Now, the city of Palms was Jericho. Now, if you remember, Jericho was the very first city that the Israelites had taken when they went into Canaan. So essentially, they're losing their prized possession. They're losing Jericho. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, for 18 years. And this is merciful. This was merciful. 
God loved his people so much that he was going to do what he needed to do to tear them out of the hands of the idols that they were serving They were ultimately going to destroy them. He could have walked away. He could have left them enslaved to their idols, worshiping their idols. But he made them, he caused them to see their spiritual danger through physical suffering. He even took, as we said, one of their most prized possessions, Jericho. He took that out of their hands in order to help them see the situation there, in order to get their attention. Now, you may say, well, that's kind of that's Old Testament, right? Uh, God doesn't do that kind of stuff anymore. Well, listen to 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians 11, which is a text we read sometimes before we partake of the Lord's Supper, talks about physical judgment that falls on people for partaking of the Lord's Supper when they really don't want to have anything to do with God. They're just, they're just faking it. They're just going through the motions. And there are people who are actually physically suffering because they had done that. And verse 32 says this, but when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Uh, Hebrews chapter 12 puts it like this, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Now that's not to say that all the suffering in my life or your life is because of some sin that you've committed. That's just not the case. But sometimes it is. There are are consequences to sin in our life and sometimes God uses physical suffering even to get our attention. Uh, There are these times when when God has to afflict us. He has to rip this thing that we're holding on to. He has to rip our precious out of our hands in order for us to finally see that this thing that we regarded as precious was actually the thing that was killing us. And if you've been there, and I've been there to be honest, it's not a lot of fun when God does that. But it's God's love for His children that, that leads Him to do this. As the writer of Hebrews goes on to say, what son is there whom the father does not discipline? What son is there whom the father does not discipline? That's what fathers who love their children do. Maybe you you think you might be there right now and you're sort of despairing because of it. Remember that his discipline is not directed to you because he hates you. His discipline is directed to you because he loves you. And he uses that to bring you back home, to draw you back to himself. Well, what happens in our text? The people cry out, uh, and, and commentators are kind of divided about whether this is genuine repentance or not, but, but they do cry out, and God shows them mercy. He shows mercy by delivering his people. Verse 30, Moab was subdued, and the land has rest for 80 years. And you know, the, the fact that God does this, that there's this rebellious people who are going their own way and doing their own thing, and, and they're afflicted and they cry out to God, and God has mercy on them, that ought to be of great encouragement to us uh, as believers. Because there are some of us as believers, and we wrestle with some of the things that we've done. Maybe we wrestle with some of the things we're still doing. 
And, and we wonder, can God really forgive that sin? Is God really going to hear me when I cry out to, to Him? Judges says that He will. Uh, and even more so, the cross says that He will hear you when you cry out to Him. Your sin, no matter what it is, is not powerful enough to defeat the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus cancels out your sin every time. It's powerful and able to cleanse you from your sin. Uh, others of you might be saying, well, you know, I'd, I'd like to come to Jesus. I wish I could be made clean. This Christianity thing, it sounds appealing, but you know what? I've just done too much. There's too much sin. There's too much guilt. There's too much shame. I, I just don't see how God could do anything with me. I don't see how I could ever be made right uh, with God. But listen to what 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. You're like, well, that... Okay, where's the good news? And listen to the next verse. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. In Ephesians chapter, chapter 2, Paul even goes so far to say that we were actually dead in our sins. But God. But God made us alive. But God had mercy on us. He, he raised us from the dead, as it were. He showed His grace. There's an older song by the group U2. Uh, it's called Grace, and, and I want you to listen to some of the lyrics. Grace, she takes the blame. She covers the shame. She removes the stain. Grace makes beauty out of ugly things. That's true in my life, and that's true in your life as well. That, that grace has this power to change us and to transform even those parts that we don't want anybody to see. Even those ugly and those broken parts. Grace has the power to change even the person most set against God and to cleanse them of their sin. I came across an article recently about a man who's a Christian theologian now, but he was once a French atheist. Uh, and the story basically tells him how he came to faith in Christ, and, and he was out somewhere, I can't remember where, he, he was with a buddy, and they were hitchhiking one day, and they met these two girls who picked him up, and, and he kind of got interested in one of these girls, and was pursuing her, and, and finds out that she's a Christian. And so he, he decides, well, I need to convince her that she doesn't need all this Christianity stuff, uh, she can do just fine without it. But I, and so he's reading up to kind of get his arguments ready and become more familiar with Christianity, so he starts reading the Bible. He starts reading the Bible and Jesus doesn't, he isn't what he expected him to be. He's sort of intrigued by this Jesus guy. And so he keeps reading uh, and, and he, he's sort of moving toward Christ perhaps, but he's not quite there. Uh, he's thinking, well, maybe I should go to church, but I've got volleyball every Sunday. He's on a traveling volleyball team. And so, you know what, I can't, I'm not going to take time to do that. Well, a couple weeks later, he injures his spiking shoulder playing volleyball. And he goes to the doctor, and the doctor says, I don't know what's wrong with it. 
and he goes to the physical therapist. The physical therapy does physical therapist does therapist for therapy for a while, um, but it doesn't help. And he finally says, "You just need to rest." So the only way this is going to get better is if you rest. And so he says, "Okay, well, I guess I guess I can go to church now." And so he goes to church, and I want you to listen to how he describes his experience. Frankly, I went to that church like I would go to the zoo to see some weird exotic animals that I had read about in books but had never seen in real life. Only at the zoo there are bars to separate you from the animals. Not so with church. So the whole experience was very awkward. And it gives you some insight into how difficult it can be for someone who doesn't believe to come in among those who do believe. But he said he stayed and he, he sat through the sermon and then he got up to leave, and, and again he writes, I reached the back door, opened it, and I literally had one foot out the door when I was suddenly stopped in my tracks as a strong chilling blast in my chest went up from my stomach all the way to my throat. I stopped there, frozen on the spot with goosebumps all over, and heard myself saying, this is ridiculous, I have to figure this out. So I put my foot back in, closed the door in front of me, turned around and went straight to the head pastor. So you believe in God, huh? Yes, he responded with a smile. So how does that work out, I asked. We can talk about it, he said. And after people laughed, we went to his office. He briefly prayed for me, which I obviously felt a bit awkward again, but at least it was reassuringly consistent. He really believed in it, and we started to talk. And so he continues to have these conversations about Christianity, and he says he Here's the point he gets to. I started to hope God would just open the sky, send down the light, and say, Welcome, son. What he did instead was less theatrical, but much more brutal. He reactivated my conscience. That was not a pleasant experience. I suddenly realized the truth I knew, but had worked very hard to suppress. At the same time, I had started my investigations. I had also come to commit a particularly sinister misdeed even by my own atheistic standards. He doesn't doesn't tell us what it is. He said, I need not provide here the sordid details of what that thing was, but it was rather extreme in its wickedness, and I had had to cover it up by piling up many lies on top of it. And though I knew exactly I had done it, I had just suppressed it and shoved it down inside as if it had never happened. Well, God shone the light and brought it back in full force right to my face, And I finally saw it for what it was. I was struck with an intense guilt, physically crippled with pain in my chest, and disgusted at the thought of that thing I had done and the lies I had covered it with. There was no going back. I had done it, and there was nothing I could do to change that. I still still remember lying there in pain in my apartment near Paris when all of a sudden the quarter dropped. It made sense. That... It's why Jesus had to die. Me. He who knew no sin became sin on my behalf so that in him I might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5. He took upon himself the penalty that I deserved so that in God's justice my sins would be forgiven freely by grace as a gift rather than by my righteous deeds or religious rituals. He died so that I may live. So I accepted the whole thing. I place my trust in Jesus and ask him to forgive me in the way the New Testament promised that he would.
God gives unexpected grace to undeserving people. He did it in Judges. He still does it today. But I want you to see also how God does this. God gives unexpected grace to undeserving people through an unexpected Savior using an unexpected method and perhaps unconventional. When the people of God cry out here, God raises up a deliverer. And this time he raises up Ehud, who we are told is a left-handed man. Now, the Hebrew literally says a man restricted in his right hand. If you go back and translate it literally, it says a man restricted in his right hand. Now, that means one of two things. It could have been that Ehud literally had a deformity in his right hand so that he couldn't use it. And so he relied on his left hand. But in a, a culture where lefties were marginalized and nobody really were looking for left-handed sword fighters, uh, the Moabites looked at this guy with a crippled hand and said, what, what's this guy going to do? And so they let their guard down. He came in and he killed the king. Or, what's probably more likely is this is simply their way of saying he was left-handed, which is why the text translates it this way. Uh, later in, in Judges chapter 20, we're going to come across a band of Benjamin, those guys, who there were 700, 700 chosen men who were all um, crippled in their right hand. Same word, restricted in the use of their right hand. They, there was this band of 700 men who could sling a stone at a hair and not miss, the text says. So it may have been not that his hand was deformed, but that he was simply left-handed. But that fact in itself was unexpected by the Moabites. They just weren't looking for a left-handed guy to come in and do what he did. Which is why the text emphasizes it so much. They emphasize that he hit his sword. Right? Why does he go to this great detail? He hit his sword on the right side. Why do we need to know that? Well, because if you're right-handed and you're going to hide a sword on your thigh and draw it out, you would put it on your left side. And so these guys, if they're just looking for a right-handed assassin, they're not going to pat him down uh, on the right side. They're just going to check out the left side. And so he gets in without them noticing the sword. When he, kills, when, he, when he actually kills Eglon, the text again emphasizes he took his left hand and he reached to his right thigh to pull the sword and to kill uh, Eglon. And so the point that's being made is that this guy, for whatever reason, his left-handedness catches everybody off guard. That nobody really sees this coming. He's not a typical right-handed hero, and so this is what allows him to get the job done. Now, I said earlier the whole scene's actually meant to be, meant to be comical. Uh, Eglon is described as a very fat man. Uh, he's basically our picture job of the hut. That's what I think about our image. Uh, there's this huge fat dude, and you're like, how's this guy, you know, in charge of everybody for 18 years? How's he ruling? And his name, if you translate it, literally means effeminate fat calf. <laughs> and so it may have been that, that the author here is, is not even using the guy's real name, and he's making fun of him. Look at this fat turkey. Look at this effeminate fat calf who himself... It looks like Eglon's, uh, Ehud's bringing him a, a, a tribute, a sacrifice, and he's actually the one who's going to be sacrificed. This effeminate, fat calf. Ehud comes in there, and he stabs him 
And Eglon's so fat that the fat like swallows the sword after he sticks it in him. And he just leaves it there. And then when he does this, he, he soils himself, okay? Um, and I won't use a euphemism for that, but you know what happens here. Uh, and, and so Ehud then has to escape, and, and the guards are outside, and they're kind of like, what's taking so long? You had this message, and, but it smells really bad, okay? And so they think he's just in the bathroom using the bathroom. And so they're embarrassed, like, oh, I don't want to go in on the king while he's doing his business. <laughs> and so they just, well, there's your euphemism. So, so, they just, so they just stand out in the hall kind of waiting on him to get done. And it says they stood to the point of embarrassment. And so finally they go in to check on him, and he's dead. Now, another thing that doesn't really come out in our text is how exactly does Ehud escape? Now, the, the, the Hebrew and all this, there's a lot of words that are kind of, these are hard to translate, so we're kind of making our best our best effort, but but some guys say that what this room actually was is a is the second story of, of the throne room, and then the way Ehud escaped was that there was a the, the toilet was actually a hole in the floor, and that the way Ehud escaped was he locked the door and he went down the toilet, so he went through the excrement and out, and he makes his escape while the guys are waiting because it smells so bad. In order to show unexpected mercy to undeserving people, God works through an unexpected Savior using very unexpected methods. Now we apply that. Uh, most of you, or some of you, remember the ending of this year's Auburn-Georgia game and the amazing ending that that was um, for the Auburn fans anyway. Um, but what you might have known is the guy who caught the ball. The guy who caught the ball is a guy named Ricardo Lewis. And prior to that game, he was probably the most unreliable receiver on the team. After that game, he dropped big passes in the Alabama game. I think he might have dropped one in the Florida State game. But, and in that game, he also tackled his own running back. Okay, He was going in motion, and an Auburn player had the ball, and he tackled his own player. So this is not the guy you expect to make to catch a ball that he's bobbling that he didn't even see coming to him. But yet here he is, he makes a play, and he wins the game. He's an unexpected hero. Uh, later today, the Seattle Seahawks are, are playing Denver. One of the players on Seattle is a deaf running back. Okay, one of the fullbacks, he can't hear, and he's in the NFL. Amazing, and Holly Miller would hate me for saying this, but, but imagine if he's the guy that winds up winning the game. This, this guy, everybody said, you can't play football. There's no need in trying. He wasn't drafted. He went and he played anyway. What if he wound up being the guy who wins the game today? <coughs> he would be totally out of left field, a completely unexpected hero. Ehud in this story is an unexpected hero. This left-handed man is an unexpected hero who God uses to deliver his people. Some of us feel like we've messed up so badly that God would never use us. Some of us think we don't have enough gifts for God to ever use us. For some of us, a church plant is an incredibly uncomfortable place to be. Because we're constantly faced with a great commission to go and make disciples. 
we're constantly faced with our need to, to reach out to our neighbors and, and to get to know new, new people. And, and we think, we look at ourselves and we think, there's no way God can use me in that. There's no way He can use me to build this church. But don't you see that God delights to use unexpected people to build His kingdom? Uh, some of you have experienced that. You've seen that. Because, because God has used you in somebody else's life and you know it wasn't you. You know that it was all Him. So, so let me encourage those of you who are, are fearful or you feel awkward or you just feel discouraged in the work of ministry. You, you feel like you're, you're not adequate enough and, and it almost paralyzes you so that you don't do anything. Let me encourage you to stop thinking about what you can't do and to think about what God can do. God delights to use unexpected people to build His church. And even in Othniel, who was not unexpected, the only reason he got anything done was because the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. Even the, the, the brightest, the most intelligent, the only reason he's able to be used by God is because the Spirit of God empowers him to do what needs to be done. God can use you. He will use you. But you have to get your eyes off of you and on Him. The second thing I say about this is that the, the methods God uses to build His church are unexpected. They're also kind of messy. I mean, Ehud had to, you know, it's just a nasty scene here. But that kind of makes sense, Right? When you think about it, because Jesus and his gospel have to get down into the messy places of our hearts and our lives if we're really going to be changed by him. If we're, if we're really going to be freed from our guilt and from our shame and from our sorrow. And what that means is that the, the, the Christian life is not meant to be processed alone. We have to, to talk about our junk uh, with other people. We have to, to talk to people who can help us apply the gospel to the messiness of our lives. We kind of have to, to bring it out to the open. And I know that's counterintuitive, isn't it? Because what we're always taught to do is to conceal, to cover up, so that everything's okay. And yet the the gospel comes in and it calls us to bring our brokenness out of the darkness and into the light so that we can actually find healing for it. And so what I would encourage you to do is, is to find somebody to talk about your junk with. Uh, maybe that's me. Maybe that's David for college students. Uh, maybe that's somebody else in the church. But find somebody. Don't just conceal it. The way out of the brokenness and shame is actually to go through it. You see the gospel applied to it in your life. That third thing here, and I'll close with this, it shouldn't surprise us to see God using an unexpected Savior and unexpected methods to save an undeserving people. Because that's really what the whole Bible is about, right? Uh, Jesus himself is an unexpected Savior. Jesus was the son of a carpenter. He never got married. He didn't have any kids. He didn't even live that long. 
Right, who, is, who is this guy wandering around in Palestine a couple thousand years ago? Uh, our assurance of faith from uh, assurance of forgiveness that we're going to read in a minute um, about the fifth or sixth line down says from Isaiah, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. And yet this is God's appointed Savior to deliver his people from sin and from death. And Jesus does this job that he's appointed for. He saves his people not by exercising power. Not by coming and swinging a sword with his right hand. But he saves his people by dying on the cross. He saves his people not through an astonishing victory. Instead he saves them through a crushing defeat. See, Jesus is the ultimate left-handed savior of the Bible. In the book of Judges, God shows unexpected mercy to an undeserving people through an unexpected Savior who uses unexpected methods. And He still does that today. Even for me. Even for you. Grace takes the blame. Grace covers the shame. Grace removes the stain. Grace still makes beauty out of ugly things. Let's pray together. God, would you help us to see how merciful and kind you are to us, even even when you afflict us? Would you help us to see that salvation doesn't come through us? how gifted we are and how talented we are. But it comes through Jesus. It comes through Jesus. Would you direct us to Him, point us to Him, help us to lean into Him and rest in Him. Pray in His name. Amen.